This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Welcome. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The military pay raise in President Biden's budget request matches the civilian raise at 2.7%. That request includes $200 million more for family support services. Military Times reports total personnel costs come to more than $5 billion in the request. A missile defense agency test in the Pacific Ocean Saturday didn't intercept its target. The agency says it intended to test a ballistic missile defense configured Aegis ship to hit a medium range target. Agency officials say a review is underway to find out why the test didn't work. The new comptroller at the Pentagon, Mike McCord, has a nominee to be his deputy. The Biden administration has nominated Kathleen Miller to be deputy undersecretary of defense comptroller. FCW reports she's administrative assistant to the Secretary of the Army now. She served in financial management jobs in the Army before that. The Biden administration's budget request for the Defense Department for fiscal 2022 includes a desire for big changes at all the services. The services all have plans to get rid of older systems and direct the money to more modern systems. Elaine McCusker is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She's former acting undersecretary of defense comptroller. Elaine, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Only in Washington would we take a verb and turn it into a noun. What are the tells that you see in this budget request? What does it say about where the department wants to move forward? Hey, so thanks for having me on today. And I think um, there's a lot going on in this budget, obviously. Um, but I've got three sort of macro observations and I'll start with just one. First of all, the defense is not a Biden administration priority. And there is an attempt to redefine what constitutes a national security investment, I think, to divert not defense funds to non-core activities. We got a preview of this fact with the interim national security guidance and with the early April discretionary budget top lines. For example, the OMB press release did not even mention defense. And defense was the only federal function to not even keep pace with inflation. While domestic agencies went up by 16%, including a 41% increase for the Department of Education. This fact was further confirmed on Friday with a White House budget summary that mentions no actual military capabilities. This budget comes at a time when the threat is clear, the competitiveness of the U.S. is in jeopardy, readiness recovery is perishable, and comparisons of real investments actually show China's defense budget, budget outpacing that of the U.S. However, rather than invest in military capability, the budget proposes to divest $2.8 billion in systems while not buying replacements. Procurement is cut by more than $8 billion, $3 billion compared to last year's request. And readiness is cut by $3 billion compared to last year's request. In my view, it's tough to argue that the nation has its priorities aligned correctly when the only federal department to lose ground on the budget and receive nearly no priority or attention from the White House is the organization in charge with the security of the nation. Given the list of divestitures and given the fact that a number of those divestitures are pet projects for members of Congress, especially powerful ones, what do you think the, the actual appropriation and authorization winds up looking like compared to what the administration wants, even given the makeup of Congress politically now, Elaine? 
Well, I think the department has um, proposed divestiture of some of these systems before and has not only been t told no, but no by Congress in, in divesting these systems. I also think that we have a situation where, though it's commendable to continue to increase our research, development, test, and evaluation budget, we're seeing a situation where we're not seeing the outcome of those investments in terms of priority and new capability. And so we need to look at what the right balance is to get, to get what we need. I also think that uh, we have a, a situation where uh, the budget request um, doesn't, I don't think, recognize the need for speed and the need for uh, investments that we can do iterative, iterative development on and see those capabilities come out much more quickly. You said this week that this uh, budget request, in your view, trades capacity for capability and we need both. What did you see that caused you to make that observation, Elaine? Well, I think we can look at the uh, shipbuilding request, and I think we can look at what's going on with some of the Army systems and reductions in those systems, and also uh, in the aircraft reductions. I mean, if you look at a lot of the major uh, line items for procurement, they're down. And so um, what kind of signal are we sending to the defense industrial base, and how are they going to be able to react when hopefully all this R&D that we've been doing for the past six, seven years, where we've had record increases, will come out and we'll need to scale up to do production. And I'm concerned that, you know, if we, if we continue to cut that production now, we're not going to have that capacity when we need it. Um, and I think, you know, capacity is its own capability as well. I don't think we, we should be able to, we have to trade capability for capacity. What is the right marker to watch as far as the research, test, evaluation, and so on to drive more success in that area that, that you're not, that you don't think we're having, that we're seeing now? I think one of our key challenges is that we still have very much an industrial age planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process that is not responsive and agile and adaptive to the type of um, work that we need to do now to transition the capabilities that we find in RDT and particularly be able to do, you know, testing see if it fails, test again, see if it fails, and, and find our successes, and then immediately be able to scale up production. And right now, our systems just are simply not designed to do that. And so we need to find a way to have um, the transparency that the Congress needs to be able to do its job um, and the visibility that they need, and also the ability to um, more quickly adapt and get capabilities out. We have about a minute left, Elaine. Uh, you referenced the skinny budget uh, a few minutes ago. Was there anything in the in the total budget, the comprehensive budget, that the skinny budget didn't indicate when it came back out in April? Uh, it came out back in April. Was there something that you saw in the main budget that you didn't really have a preview of? I mean, I think the skinny budget actually did a pretty good job of previewing the fact that defense is not a priority for the administration and gave us a pretty good signal of, of where they are putting their priority and also that they are, uh, I think, intending to redefine things in a way that will allow us to spend more defense resources on non-defense things. I think, though, I was a little bit surprised at the depth of the cut to procurement and also the cut to readiness. I mean, we see a $3 billion cut to readiness from last year's request to this request. And I think we, we have to keep our eye on readiness. It's a perishable thing. And if we cut it, we could lose, lose ground there quickly. Elaine McCusker, thanks very much for joining me. Appreciate your time. Thank you. You can read more about the Biden administration's budget request at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, playing catch up at the top of the world. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Coast Guard strategy to strengthen northern defenses. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Coast Guard budget request for fiscal 2022 includes $13.1 billion. $170 million of that request will go to program management for construction of the Polar Security Cutter. Vice Admiral Sandra Stowes, U.S. Coast Guard retired, former Deputy Commandant for Mission Support. Her new book is Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters. Admiral, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What's the current state of the fleet in the Arctic and the Antarctic? Well, good morning, Francis, and thank you so much for having me. So the current state of the fleet, I'll just give you just a fraction of background. The United States Coast Guard took over responsibility for the polar icebreaking mission in 1965 when the nation's fleet of icebreakers was transferred to the Coast Guard from the Navy. And the Coast, the U.S. had about six icebreakers at that time. And the missions in the Antarctic can only be conducted by heavy icebreakers, and the missions in the Arctic can be conducted by medium icebreakers. So we had the Polar Star and the Polar Sea, two heavy icebreakers, were commissioned in 1976. So that makes them 45 years old right now. And actually only the Polar Star remains in service. So that cutter is going through a service life extension program right now that's been funded. And we have the second icebreaker we have is the Healy, Coast Guard Cutter Healy. That's a medium icebreaker. That was commissioned in 1999 and it's 22 years old right now. So only the two Coast Guard icebreakers. There's also, for those who might know, the Nathaniel Palmer out there, a medium science icebreaker owned and operated by the National Science Foundation. That was put into service in 1992, making it 29 years old. So you can see that the state of the fleet is aging, aged. And the Polar Security Cutters um, being built by Halter Marine, that's uh, one of the Coast Guard's top acquisition priorities. The program of record is for three heavy icebreakers. The first two are fully funded, and the third, as you just mentioned, Francis, is in the fiscal 2022 budget. The the fleet overall, as you as you state, is aged dramatically over the years and has not aged well. There was the anecdote recently of a uh, uh, member of the crew of the Polar Star having to go on eBay to find a part in order to be able to continue the service of the ship. It's a small piece, it just doesn't exist anymore in the traditional defense industrial base. What's this, what's, what's the, what does that say about where we are today, given that the Arctic becomes more and more important in particular every day? You know, the Arctic is more and more important. Um, the U.S. has national interests at both of the poles and um, other nations, both in the Arctic and, uh, both Arctic nations and non-Arctic nations are establishing presence in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. I know you asked about the Arctic mm. and the Russia is of course building air and sea bases in the Arctic to project power. Down in the Antarctic, uh, China is building stations to establish presence. So as uh, our former Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Thad Allen had said at the time when the Arctic was just emerging as a new operating area, he said something to the effect that in the Arctic there's water where there used to be ice, so the Coast Guard has a responsibility to conduct uh, and operate and execute its missions in that area. So we need to show sovereign presence uh, up there in the Arctic. We need to enforce laws and treaties and do the Coast Guard missions. It's a new space to um, operate in and we have a responsibility to be there.
a lot of focus over the last several months in particular because of that activity in the Arctic. I'm surprised that we're not hearing more about the Antarctic. You describe, we talked about it offline uh, pretty significantly. You write about it uh, extensively in your book. What is the strategic significance of the Antarctic today and what's the potential strategic significance of it moving forward, Admiral? So the Antarctic today is a long way away and you know, you have to say there's something to be said about out of sight, out of mind. And I know from being a polar icebreaker sailor, just having uh, been to both poles long, a long time ago for the uh, for the north side. But um, there's a, a misunderstanding even of what the Arctic is and what the Antarctic is by average people. If you ask polled people, you'd probably find a lot of people didn't know the difference between the Arctic and the Antarctic didn't know that the Arctic is an ocean and the Antarctic is a, a massive continent um, and, and that sort of thing. So in the Antarctic, there's a treaty that was uh, signed in 1959 governing the, the space down there, the geography. There's a lot of nations that have an interest in that. It's a, it's a content that has a lot of um, resources, natural resources that of course could be conceivably harvested. Um, the U.S. interests down there are science. We've got South Pole Station, which has incredible science research programs going on down there, funded and sponsored by the National Science Foundation. And the Coast Guard supports that mission with ice breaking, heavy ice breaking in the Antarctic. And that's a space that uh, America needs to provide and have a presence in because it could be uh, geopolitically very significant at some point, although it is less on the radar now than the Arctic is. We have about a minute left, Admiral. What do you want people to take away from this new book? What do you want people to learn from what you have to say? I, I'm going to stick with a polar theme. So leadership in the Arctic, leadership in the Antarctic and the polar regions is no different than leadership in an organization. There's an awful lot of things to consider um, with respect, civil conversations, diversity and inclusion. There's a lot of in indigenous people living in the Arctic. There are environmental issues with climate change to consider. There are eight Arctic nations that are part of the Arctic Council. There's 13 that are non-Arctic states that want to be in on the issues up there. There's a lot of issues and no treaty in the Arctic. And I think the leadership is very important. And the U.S. has a great chance to lead in a peaceful domain and keep it that way. Uh, when you look at the world and the conflict we have, this is a great opportunity through the Arctic Council, the Coast Guard Forum, the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, and the IMO for the United States to take a leadership role. And I'm glad to see Secretary, Secretary of State Blinken doing that with his recent visits to three Arctic nations. Admiral, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Congratulations on your book. Thank you, Francis. Coming next, one of the department's biggest money-saving offices disappears. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Pentagon huddles on busting up the chief management office. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The new Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller Mike McCord will be one of the leaders at the table as the department figures out how to break up the chief management office. 
at the Defense Department. McCord said at his confirmation hearing that breakup would be one of his top jobs. Beth McGrath is managing director at Deloitte Consulting. She's former deputy chief management officer at the Department of Defense. And for folks who uh, on whom the terminology is lost, Beth, you essentially were the CMO when you were there, if not in title, in function. What are some of the pieces in that office that you dealt with that people not, might not be thinking of or expecting to be on the list to have to move somewhere? Yeah, thanks, Francis. And, you know, it's important to understand, I'll just say a little bit of history of why the office was established. And it was really to get a better focus on the, let's say, the business enterprise of the Defense Department. So as they're looking at things like business systems and defense-wide program, uh, data and the broader reform initiatives, it's really important that they understand it from a, um, an enterprise holistic perspective. The, some of the functions seem obvious. Some of the, the financial management functions, it would seem to be most sensible to go to Mike's office. Some of the uh, information technology functions, it would seem to make sense to go to the CIO's office. What are some of the ones that you think might be harder to place? And what's the logic that you would like to see the department apply to help place those, Beth? Yeah, and again, I think probably the most important thing is to remember who the... Um, um, I'll say the requirements and the outcome responsibility, you know, where that falls and it's really with the business owners. And so while even the CMO was a focal point for the enterprise to drive, you know, analytics change, business architecture and those kinds of things, it was the, the business owners who really had the responsibility and needed to be engaged in the conversation. So I, th I think while it sounds logical that you know technology things would go to the cio i think divorced of the the business owners then you know that that will irrespective of where those things went it, it would not work and so um i i think it is not as simple as you know moving the the what seems to be logical pieces into place i think it's really um to better understand sort of how it all fits together and how do you drive you know holistic change across the department we are beyond the point obviously of debating or litigating where whether the office should stand down or whether it shouldn't it's going away what are the best practices uh, tactically for uh, moving the pieces that have to move and settling into their uh, settling them into uh, their new locations beth yeah, and you know, I think last time we talked, uh, I said probably a couple of times the de department's a big place and it's highly complex and you know it's a mission-focused organization, and so understanding sort of the organization and and the design of the organization, and you know, in in sort of today's terminology, you would talk about the looking at the operating model, so irrespective of where things sit, understanding sort of the business, um, the processes, sort of people process technology, you know, they're always part of the mix. Uh, I think Mike mentioned in his um, his confirmation hearing, you know, skill sets are really important. Um, do you have them? Where do they reside? Are you using them the way you should? And then the, you know, the structure. So, so once you understand how are you gonna get this stuff done, uh, really then understanding the structure and then certainly governance. I think governance, I was to say one thing they need to get right 
uh, is is the governance piece. How to get right the governance piece, though, Beth? What what is the indicator at some point during a uh, some progress report during the chain or at the end uh, to determine whether the governance is being correctly applied? Uh, of course, it's not a simple answer when it comes to the Defense Department, but. Um, Certainly leadership engagement will be critical. So it seems like uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks is engaging as is, you know, Ms. McCord and others as, as, they, as they arrive and confirm. Um, you know, it's the clarity of objective, leadership at the table, transparency and accountability, and then, you know, skin in the game across uh, many of the, the business owners. I also think uh, incentives will play a role here. You know, it's hard to change, as we talked about last time, but having the proper incentives in place, again, transparency and accountability will be key. We have a little bit more than a minute left, Beth. Um, what does a successful outcome look like? Well, it's probably got, I was going to say five years, but the CMO office didn't really have five years to determine its success. So what does success look like two years from now or three years from now, Beth? Yeah, you know, uh, I wish my crystal ball was, you know, super exact, but um, again, I think speed to, you know, put the new process and procedures in place is important. I think that, you know, as we discussed last time, change is hard. And, um, and so moving deliberately, you know, I'm not saying rush to failure, but I am saying move deliberately and fast you know, uh, clarity on these roles and responsibilities, making sure you've got enterprise-wide governance and transparency so that people understand it's still important to the leadership of the department, it's still important to the administration, and and uh, they need to move out. Beth McGrath, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your insight. Thank you, Francis. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess, but um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.